please pronounce your name correctly for me? Sure. It's Catherine October Matthews. Lovely. Now, you do lots of different things. So give me a rundown of sort of like all the different things you either currently do or maybe are known for as well. Well, I do maybe also subdivide my work into the things that I do uh, kind of commercially, the things that I do creatively, and the things that I do which are somewhere in between. So artistically, I, I'm a writer, I'm a photographer, I'm kind of a conceptual artist who's working with different media on the side of let's say services or commercial work that I offer. I am also an editor, both text editing and photography editing. And then even more commercial than that, I do also work with companies of various kinds, startups, agencies, and so on, doing an extension of the work that I do with individual artists, which is collaborative thinking. And basically it falls into the realm of analysis or product ownership, or uh, strategic thinking related to content, and things like that. Okay, that's much more elaborate than I was expecting. All right. <laughs> you do more things that I could even find out about you on the internet. That's interesting. Yeah, some of these things are kept quite separate, because they don't really... Uh, People on the commercial side don't really understand the artistic side and a bit vice versa. So I tend to have little silos for these different work forms. Is it that they don't know or don't care? When it comes to commercial work, don't care. Certain recruiters that I work with tell me, get rid of this out of your CV. Nobody understands it. Nobody wants to know. It's not relevant. People just want to consume as much relevant information as possible and the rest is distracting. I personally find that a little bit sad in the sense that I am so aware that that means that I'm not really going to be bringing my full self to that position or to that area. But it is what it is. It's hard. I mean, we all do that. I mean, to a certain extent, a lot of creative people work other jobs and like part of our lives is not used in other parts of our lives and vice versa. And it's a sort of sad state of affairs that we, like we can't be just fully paid and supported as creative people, but we have to do sort of side hustles that have either have nothing to do with it or don't actually sort of fulfill our creative needs in any way. It is the way it <laughs> it is. And I don't know that I really expect it to be different. I think maybe I used to have some idealistic notion that I would just be able to make whatever my heart desired and be compensated fairly for it. But I think I might be considering that only idealistic. I'm still an idealist like that. I, I still hope that that thing will come around someday. On the, on the other side of it, though, I'm a complete realist in many ways as well. So I, I my terminology for myself is a pessimistic optimist. Mm. So like I, I prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. How's that working for you? Some, you know, it's just like everything <laughs> else in my life, you know, Live, working on two extremes, taking, uh, taking contradictory positions at all times kind of thing. Like, but when it comes to like being prepared for things and organizing things, cause I've, I've put together art festivals and nonprofit organizations and all kinds of other things throughout my career. So like the ability to be prepared for all contingencies has become a very useful thing in, in my field for sure. Sure. I think you have to be adaptive very quickly. 
Indeed. So let's go back a little bit. So you, how did uh, how did you come to the creative industries in the first place? Like, were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers? Like, what was your pathway to the creative industries? It's hard to say because I think I've been somewhat creative my whole life. And I'm not entirely sure where and when that started. My mother was especially always encouraging. I think she really enjoyed in her youth photography as well. She really liked to paint and illustrate. She was a draftswoman. And my dad on the other side is in computers. He's a database administrator. And to some extent, I think you can consider programming a creative field. And he's also quite literary minded. I have two older sisters, and both of them were very artistically inclined as well. So kind of from an early age, you had all three of us taking art classes. My mom saw that, and she signed us up for extra art classes in addition to the stuff that you could take at school to really encourage it. But because I had these two older sisters who were very skilled at the visual arts, more so than I was at that age, of course, because I was younger, I think I leaned more towards writing and the written word and the visual arts for quite a long period of time. And it's only been the last, I don't know, decade or so of my life that I've kind of tried to get back into visual arts, reawakened by a hobbyist pursuit of photography that just became a bigger and bigger part of my life. But I've been a writer, I think, as long as, as, long as I can remember back. Right, because you were also the chief editor of, how is it pronounced? Goop? Gup? <laughs> G, is it G-U-P magazine? I've never understood how to say it correctly. If you are Dutch, it's Gup. <laughs> oh, okay, I had it totally wrong. <laughs> no, but for everyone internationally, mostly you hear the, the full gamut of, uh, of pronunciations, and I tend to say by default Gup magazine. I would have said Gup up before getting on here with you. <laughs> it is a little bit of a play on words in the sense that uh, the focus was thought to be kind of starting artists or uh, underrepresented or underexplored areas of art, which so it's like guppies, in addition to just GUP guide to unique photography. Is that what that means? It I is. never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have known about that publication for decades, and I never knew that that's what it meant. <laughs> yeah, for a long time, they didn't really put that explanation front and center. It's uh, nope. part of the branding. Well, or maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention, I guess. <laughs> Could be. And you also like publish your own books. Now, so like you created your own publishing house, is that correct? The House of October. Right. And then have done your own books. Are you doing just your own books? Are you working with other people? So like, what's, what's the sort of construct of this publishing house? Well, I still think of it definitely as a startup and a startup in thought, because I'm still thinking about what I want to do with it. I started it because there was this project I was working on together with an organization or a collective of European colleges. It was a book and deck of cards called Creativity as a Career, the Field Guide for Artists. And it was basically a, well, this, the title is self-explanatory, but a field guide together with some cards of quotes and questions meant to prompt thought and 
encourage dialogue. And it was produced as part of a subsidy of Europe. And so it was all produced as Creative Commons. So it's all available online, completely free of charge. One of the things that we wanted to do as well was get a little bit wider distribution. And in addition to the publication, which is just available as a PDF free of charge, I made it available for print on demand. And part of doing that was getting an ISBN and starting this publishing house, which also kind of followed onto a path that I wanted to explore for myself. So it's, it's, it wasn't just a kind of an administrative task, but kind of something that I was thinking about and not knowing exactly where I wanted to take it. But that was the starting point. And then from there, I also published some of my own books, as well as a project that is not authored by me, but was book designed and kind of laid out by me. And I don't know what comes next with that publishing house. It's like I said, it's kind of a work in progress, a thought in progress. Okay. And I'm, I'm utterly fascinated by your book, the, the unique making photographs in the age of ubiquity. Mostly because I completely relate to and have railed on the world of photography because of its ubiquity and the inherent difficulty that has sort of arisen because of that in our contemporary society. So I am all on your side for that. Great. We we need more. (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing is, is, okay, so uh, unfortunately, I have not, I believe you are sending me the book. I haven't received it yet. So... I haven't read it, but love the title, totally relate to it. I gave up on photography about five years ago. I was just like, fuck it. I don't know what I can do that's new and unique, that's not being done either mediocrely by many people or magnificently by some other people. It's like, I don't know what I have to add to it. So I sort of shifted mediums. I did photography for 25 years and I don't know what more I have to add. And that's sort of my position on it as a general whole. It's like, what... What is that unique? And again, like, I love the title. What is that like unique characteristic that I, as the creator of a photograph today in 2022, can add to the vernacular of the medium? And I don't know. So please help me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think it's a, a common struggle and as well a common question, because of course, you know, particularly when I was chief editor of the guide to unique photography, people would always ask, what is unique? What does that mean? And how do I, how do I make it? And so it was a question, I mean, the, the book actually kind of came out of that line of thought because I had to think about this question so much. I think I agree with you and I have many thoughts on it, obviously. Maybe, I, tell. <laughs> maybe I would start with borrowing a couple of other people's thoughts. For example, Susan Sontag described that photography's ubiquity is part of its aggression. And I think that that is a really beautiful way of thinking about it because it's very confronting if you're a photographer. I think it is important to realize that people are shooting constantly now, not necessarily for creative purposes even, but just as registrations, as documentation, as conversation. It is simply a way of being in the world that doesn't necessarily have to have any creative output. Another thought I want to add is I interviewed several years ago, uh, Nicholas Venturakis, whose advice, if you will, was, you know, don't even try to be unique because it's a chimera. 
And I think there's some sense to that because I do think that anytime you're trying to achieve something, you probably don't really achieve it because you aim too directly for something which is a moving target. So I do think it's really important to think of being unique as a dynamic quality, meaning it is constantly changing. So what is unique today is a convention tomorrow. And I do think that being unique has something to do with being in the eyes of the beholder. And so as an editor, when I'm looking at work, and especially as an editor who is bombarded by photography, not just the photography I seek out, but all the things that are being constantly submitted, you feel these patterns that happen and people are producing very similar work unintentionally, all believing themselves to be originals, right? So, and that's not to say that they are not, except that I think we place too much emphasis in creativity on being original. And for good reason, because, you know, being original is the bread and butter of an artist. But at the same time, it's not the pursuit of that that makes you achieve it. So it's quite a troublesome topic. And yet, at the same time, I kind of want to make it really light. Because it's something that comes and goes. And so you can't attach too much weight to it when looking through so, so many photos day after day after day. And then all of a sudden, something hits you as, I haven't seen that before. That is such an encounter, such a sublime encounter. Because there are people working all the time and confronting each other with these images. And I tend to think of it as a bit of scaffolding. You know, there's, there's all these layers that kind of build upon each other, not intentionally, of course, because each of them all think that they're building their own thing, their own monument to creative genius. <laughs> but it's scaffolding, which occasionally results in a light at the top of the pyramid. And every once in a while, that's the stuff that really blows your mind. Doesn't say anything to diminish the rest of the scaffolding, but they don't necessarily ever get credit for the things that they've done. You brought up so many topics in there. I've got a little list of questions. So the first thing was you mentioned that looking at things, you start seeing patterns and stuff like this. I also do um, portfolio reviews for lens culture anonymously. So like nobody knows, but I've done like 3,500 of these things. And I started noticing patterns, not just necessarily even in sort of styles. Oh, sorry. So that 3,500 is over like six years. So just to be clear. So like, I didn't do that in like a, a month, but so, just to be clear, but the, I find patterns, not only just like in sort of like, um, you know, over time. So like things become in favor and out of favor, but I find patterns in locations. Like I find that certain styles are very popular in a certain like little segment of countries, let's say. So like specifically in the Netherlands, I actually had a, a time period where there was this whole set of works that I kept seeing from that region that was very similar. <laughs> and, and of course, as an American, I'm in Europe and almost every time I show my work, people are automatically like, oh, you're an American. Like just 
by something that's in my work and I don't quite personally know what that thing is, but there seems to be some sort of American style of artwork that uh, is very uh, recognizable. And so I find it very interesting that it's not just the ebbs and flows of the arts industry of like what's interesting, what's not interesting, but there's also regional patterns that occur that a lot of us aren't even aware of. Sure. And I do think that some of that does have to do with, you know, just the fact that we interface with other human beings, right? We are told and schooled on the belief that we should look to other artists as a way of growing. And I think that's really valid advice. We should see how other people are achieving things. And so, for example, if you have a class that is all in one area, their scope of material might all be of a certain topic of a certain location, et cetera, and similar just by proximity. And then I think you have those kind of conversations that take place where, for example, I think the European art world can be a bit insular. The American art world can be very insular. And that there can is some... Be, I think you're being very generous with that. <laughs> And then, like, you could just say the Western art world at large can be very insular. There's all these circles of interaction that happen. And so I think that's also kind of the ingredients that make any given artist what they are, is that you can kind of see their influences. You can kind of see where they're coming from based on both their visual languages, their topics, their way of producing bodies of work, all those things. And it's both fascinating and as a side effect, also then you see patterns. And so I, I don't even, I'm not even resistant to the patterns, except to the extent that I don't think that there's any value in people believing that they are the original author of some topic or of some idea. I, I think that's a misguided belief. Oh yeah, gave up on that decades ago cuz like <laughs> like I mean everybody is influenced by everything. So like I at one point I noticed I bought a new car and then I noticed that a lot of my work had the same color as my new car. <laughs> and I was just suddenly like, "Oh, I'm being influenced by the color of my new car. Fuck, everything influences <laughs> me." <laughs> like it's just I started working on a, a particular pattern and I was just like, "Oh, that's interesting. That's the same pattern in my tile in my kitchen." Like, god damn it. Like and people think that like they're they're getting this magical, ethereal, mystical, like divine thing and it's like, "No, you're just using colors." That that Pantone called the color of the year, and the, therefore it's the most common in the stores, and it's the most common on people's clothing when you walk around the street. So therefore, you now suddenly think it's a really great color, and you're incorporating it into your art. That's how life is. Yeah, and as well, it's I mean, it's it's influenced too by what's available in technology. And so, if technology suddenly allows us to represent another color, for example, the release of that uh, that super black or something. I don't know. People respond to that by integrating that into their work. And again, I think there's nothing wrong with using... Except we can't because that one's been trademarked. Yeah, okay. An Anoush Kapoor just like bought that rights to that. As soon as I was Not saying sure it. I feel about that. <laughs> I knew. I, I, I was thinking, actually, this is a bad example. But... Uh, well, no, it's actually a great example because, I mean, after, like, as soon as that color got created, what was it like Van, Van Per Black? Van, 
has a V in it. But anyways, the, as soon as that was created, all of a sudden other companies came out with like, not the same, but extremely similar ones. And it was just like, oh, great. Okay, so it's available. And there are ones that are available for us to actually use. So, I mean, you know, necessity is the mother of invention in many ways. Like as soon as something comes out, suddenly a bunch of knockoffs come out of it, which is great in some ways. But I also run into the other problem, which is as a creative person, there's also, you were talking about like resources, like where do you get things and how like what's available in your region influences how you work. I'm from America, so I grew up going through schooling and everything with certain materials and certain things like this. I was in school at the time when like film was still analog. We were still in the dark room, all this kind of stuff. I moved to the United Arab Emirates. They've never even heard of analog photography there. Everything's digital there. Now I'm in Europe and I'm doing this other artistic practices and none of the materials that I know from America are even available in Europe. And it's not like I can go like, oh, well, there's this other thing like it. Like, no, like they, they just aren't available. And so it's fascinating to me, like the varieties of different things throughout the world. It's not just necessarily like, what are you interested in or what do you like, what subject matter, but it's also what resources are literally physically available to you that change everything. Sure, and what's even affordable as well. That can make a very big difference. Maybe nowadays you can actually get anything you want shipped to you or somehow imported, but still it doesn't mean that it's financially viable. So I still think that, I mean, for example, even with experimentation, you kind of want to just try things without going broke. And part of that is playing with available or doing DIY hacks at home for, you know, coming up with a substitute. Those all produce individualized or localized ways of seeing. Oh yeah, I'm all about playing in the studio. I, I I get made fun of a lot because I often say I'm going to play in the studio and people are like, don't you take your artistic practice seriously? And I'm like, I do. And that's why I call it playing. Like it's, <laughs> it's meant to be fun. If it was a job, I wouldn't enjoy doing it. I think that's a beautiful and important distinction or viewpoint. It should be fun or at least speak to the part of us that really enjoys playfulness. Well, my father used to say to me when I was a kid uh, that, that when you get a job, it's not supposed to be fun. He's like, it's not fun. That's why they call it a job. Otherwise, it would be called fun. Yeah. One of my friends always likes to say if work was supposed to be fun, they would pay you to come in. But I think this, you know, well, I have lots of thoughts too on work and what work means, but I do think that this is a kind of self-reinforcing or self-repeating attitude that people like to spread because it justifies their own compromises. And I think people really love it when you make the same compromises that they do because it justifies them. Yeah, my wife, she's an accountant. And so she works like 40, 60 hours a week and all that. And every now and then I'll just be like, well, I'm going to go play in the studio. But like, and to me, that's work time, like, because I'm working on my body of work. I'm working on my next exhibition. I'm working on something else. You know, and she always gets very envious and jealous and sort of almost resentful of me because like she's sitting in front of a computer doing this horrible task, meaningless task where I'm playing in the studio and it's it's very interesting dynamic yeah that's more complicated when you're actually partnered with somebody <laughs> of course 
But I do think that people make different compromises, not just about their own life, but at different stages during their own life. And I think that some compromises were more comfortable with, we've made peace with more than others. And I'm sure that her job brings her a lot of advantages that she's very happy with. <laughs> You're shaking your head. No. <laughs> it brings her income, stable income, and she appreciates that. That is an advantage. It is. In comparison to people in the creative industries, that's a huge advantage. <laughs> yeah. She also gets a, you know, socialized health care and other things like this, which, again, great advantage over most people in the creative industries. Yeah. I mean, and when it comes to a steady job, I do think that that introduces stability more than just income, but also just the structure of your time, which a lot of people really thrive in and a lot of people do not. So I do think that some people prefer the structure of a given work week. I'm half and half. I I love structure. I like I work I work on like let's say job related things in the morning and then I do creative stuff in the afternoon and then maybe go back to the job like work money based things in the evening. But this is my sort of philosophy on it is that you have to have a certain amount of structure in order to allow for a certain amount of absurdity. Yeah, I think I agree with that. It gives you certain constraints to work within to unleash in <laughs> in a context a given chaos. Correct. Yeah. I mean, but if everything's chaos, it doesn't work. If everything's no. structured, it also doesn't work. So like a certain amount of things I really love is when organized and, and sort of methodically done, which then allows for the spontaneity of whatever else to happen. And I think that's the, you know, now that I'm 40, almost 49 years old, like I finally figured that out, that that's really the beautiful balance for me, which is not true for everybody. No, but you can spend your whole life getting to know yourself, right? And you can spend your whole life not getting to know yourself. <laughs> it's true. It's a personal choice. <laughs> yeah. But you talked about compromise and moving targets. I'm, I recently got called out on a previous podcast episode where I had said, in my youth, my goal was to have a retrospective at the Guggenheim when I was 50 years old. That was my like life goal. Well, I'm 48, almost 49, not even close to that retrospective at the Guggenheim. And so now I've sort of like in my age and, and I don't know what else other factors have come into it. What I really want out of my artistic career is time, space, and money. And that's it. Like I, those are the three characteristics that I'm like, I want those three. I want enough time, enough space, and enough money. Don't want to be rich. Don't need to be famous. All this kind of stuff. But I would just time, money, space, and I will be very happy. And now, so the question is, have I compromised too much? I mean, only you can say that for sure. But I would say that that sounds like a more realistic goal. And I say that because... It's not based on ambition of recognition, which I think is always, to some extent, a bit of a young and naive goal. Because, I mean, I think at your age, at my age, we know those aren't the things that bring you happiness. They are fleeting victories. And they can feel like victories, but then you're confronted with, and then what? Because you have to keep going. 
I even spoke to somebody who was in like the Venice Biennale and they said that for the rest of their career, they were living down after the height of having been in the Venice Biennale, then everything else was, well, wasn't the Venice Biennale. And so they lost its luster. And I'm like, yeah, kind of certain things, maybe you don't want to achieve too early in life because then <laughs> you gotta, you gotta sort of, you know, equal that. And that's gotta be tough as well. It presents its own challenges to say the very least. So I do think that goals that are more internally based, or at least more about the things that are within your realm of control, I think those are better goals to have because you can actually achieve them. I mean, there is something valid about taking note of the things that you want, which are external, because I think it does give you something to aim for. But I think it's really important too to just also treat it really lightly to not be so concerned with it because it comes or it doesn't and then it goes one way or the other whether you get it or whether you don't it, it goes whereas what you're left with day after day is yourself and i think it's really better to be able to live with yourself well, it's a part of it's what you said with like patterns and things like this, because like you may be practicing your art and you're finally getting to some point that let's say you have some career goal of having a solo show at a major institution. So it's not even specifically like saying, oh, I want it in the Tate Modern, but like any major institution solo show. And, you know, just like having that sort of long-term and then also short-term goals. I like that sort of balance also. Gosh, we're talking all about balance. This is great. But so short-term goals and long-term goals, I feel like I need to have both of them. Because if I only have short-term goals, then I just sort of tick them off a little too quickly and it's sure. too easy almost. And if I only have long-term goals, it's like, how do you keep your eye on the prize like every day? Because like, God, Netflix is so enticing kind of thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so I find that having both short-term and long-term goals is the way that it keeps me motivated in the short run as well as motivated in the long run. I agree totally. It gives a certain rhythm because I do think that you need to kind of be able to sit down and conceptualize where you want to go. What is your longer-term path? But indeed, if you focus only on that you aren't living in the present, you aren't able to achieve things in the short term, and you never or very rarely get to experience minor victories, which I think are important too. But at the same time, I mean, I know there are some people who live very much in the moment and who are very short term driven. I, I am not one to judge anybody. If it works for you, do it. I, I encourage it. And at the same time, though, I, I do think that having a long-term vision at least gives you something to reflect on in the sense that I think there can be a tendency to reach certain moments in your life and look back and think, oh my God, how did I get here? This is not where I wanted to be. And part of that, I think, is a little bit just, you know, the driving a little bit asleep at the wheel or following your impulses from one moment to the next where you don't really understand the larger forces guiding your decision-making and your path. And so I think one way of resolving those moments of saying, how did I get here, are reflecting on at least, at, you know, you can, you can 
look as far into the future as you like, I tend to think of them as like stars to steer by. They are very far away. But as long as I'm heading for them, all paths are the right paths. And that frees up a lot of the burden of smaller decisions. Well, I love that analogy because like I often say to my students, by the way, I'm a professor in case you didn't know that. So I often say to my students that like basically shoot for the stars, like try to make the most amazing work you have ever made every time you go in the studio. And if you miss that target, you're still doing pretty spectacular work. A lot of people like when I was in school, like recently, a lot of my students are using terms like good enough like well the work's good enough like it'll it'll I'll pass the class and I'm like is that really the life you want to be living like when I go in the studio I want to be like making the most epic work because I want my days to be like that like I mean nobody wakes up in the morning and goes you know what today today I just want to be good enough I don't want it to be great I don't want it to be bad I just want today to be good enough like that's not how we think of it. So like, why would we do that in our creative process? I find that ridiculous. I agree, except I would qualify that if you're shooting for the stars, if you're shooting for greatness and grandness and you beat yourself up every time you don't achieve it, I would say it's probably counterproductive. If you are willing to be kind enough to yourself to accept that on any given day, that's what you were able to produce, then that's fine. Then that's then that's great. You aimed high and you got where you got because sometimes that's that's all you can do. You don't get to choose when you have moments of genius <laughs> or when the materials do the thing you want them to do because like you might have a genius idea but the materials don't answer it the way you thought they would. But yeah, yeah no no, I, I just I, I had to put it as a, because of my whole pessimistic optimist sort of my didactic lifestyle i am also a huge embracer of failure Uh, Mm. i'm all for failure and these days i feel like with social media and all the other sort of pressures of the constant production and stuff that we are sort of almost not allowed to fail as much as i encourage failure like there was this great i saw some documentary somewhere and some graphic design firm had this mural painted in their office that just said like from floor to ceiling fail hard (laughs) and I'm like yes like if you're like I learn far more from failures than I do from successes so I if you're gonna fail fail epically in order to then like learn what you've done wrong and how you can maybe even take that failure and turn it into a success but that's just me you're laughing at me so I'm not sure if you're laughing at me or like laughing with me Can it be both? Because, okay, so on one hand, I agree with you. I learned from failure. On the other hand, fail hard, fail epic. These are are like, this is the Silicon Valley model, which results in a lot of really depressed people. And so I don't really know that I would advocate that. But I mean, you, you have to be willing to fail because otherwise you don't risk anything. You don't try anything. You don't play. And at the same time, you know, even even my idea about failure is I think there's this tendency to fetishize it, it almost. And I would be really wary about that because then you can become very comfortable in your failure, right? And you stop aiming for the success or start even knowing what that success means. And I do think to be a bit optimistic, you can at least aim for that success, whatever it is. 
And again, just be kind to yourself when you fail or even exactly pivot on it and say, what did I learn from that? Oh, how fun that was. When I was a full-time photographer, like, so like, that's what I did for my career. I felt like I had to be making like two to three series of works within a year kind of thing. Like it was a very fast paced, like create a whole body of work, get it done, move on. When I pivoted away from photography and started working with other disciplines and other mediums, I tested and tried and worked with mediums for like three years before I even came to a final sort of thing. Like, oh my God, that's the thing that I, I want to investigate. So like the speed of photography these days I feel like is exacerbating the lack of failure and so like I think that's a, a difficult balance to be riding because the, a lot of images that people are putting out and that's a whole other issue too is I feel mm -hmm. like people are putting out too many images when they should be just like only putting out their absolute best because my personal position is, is that every artist's career is only as good as their worst photograph ouch <laughs> that's so unforgiving <laughs> but but I I understand why. I mean, that is a critic's perspective. Am I a critic now? Is that what I'm doing? <laughs> I think so. Otherwise, like, why would that be the case? Why is the the lowest bar the bar? Well, it, because uh, I've been looking at like a lot of older photographers that I you know knew in my youth and I admired their work in my youth. I'm not going to name any names. And then like I saw some work later in their lives, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's not as good. Maybe I don't respect them as much as I did when they did that earlier stuff. And so like my opinion of these people who I thought were the best, the top of the top, once I start seeing works that are not as, I don't know, monumental or impactful kind of works, my opinion of them sort of goes down. I personally still believe, even though of course social media and everything will tell us the opposite of this, I still believe that less is more as far as your artistic career and your artistic reputation, because the more people see, the more potential for mediocrity will be in there versus greatness kind of, you know, sort of aspirationally. That's true. And so on principle, I agree with you. And yet, you're going to hear this from me all the time because I'm all about balance. <laughs> I think how wonderful for you that you got to see that your heroes are human. That's all I can think of. Because I, I, I do think that so much about growing as an artist, growing as a person is like learning to not put so much weight and not to not valorize artists. They are just human. And honestly, I think we need to give them more permission to be human because it's not really fair that all we see are, are the masterworks. I mean, I think that's why we end up so confused when great artists, so-called, end up being very flawed human beings with problems that we can't really overlook. Whereas if they were always just human, there would be less well, to reconcile. There are some people's things that we shouldn't overlook. I, I'm thinking of some very specific artists that we should not be overlooking their pedophilia yeah. and other things like that. But exactly, the, it, it's hard. I mean, because like, especially in photography, it's also an, an interesting thing. Like when we look back on, let's say Van Gogh, like we all know probably three to five images of his work kind of stuff. But if we look back on, I don't know, any given photographer, let's say from the 60s or 70s kind of thing, most people in the world know one photograph. And then they know nothing else about the rest of their career. And it's really kind of sad sometimes when I sit there and I'm like, most photographers will work their entire career to 
hopefully be known for one photo. Yeah. When you put it like that, it puts so much pressure on that fraction of one second in which that one photograph was produced over a human lifetime. And you never know which photo it will be. <laughs> it could be that one you did in high school. It could be the one you're going to make in 10 years from now. But that one photo oftentimes will end up defining your career in a way that a lot of other industries, you know, even art creative industries, that doesn't happen. That may be the case, yeah. I mean, photographs do have that certain um, quality of picture memory and combined with disposability. Mm, so I, I, on one hand, I think that we all remember photos very well, meaning we see them and then they're kind of part of an internal catalog of images we've seen. But I, you know, I, I still have mixed feelings on the idea that photographs should be known for the person who took them, especially portraits. It's a very strange phenomenon that it's a photograph of somebody taken by somebody else and that we should know the person who took the photograph. I want you to elaborate on that. Uh, this does have to do, I guess, a bit more with my questions or doubts about authorship. But I do tend to think of photographs as something different within the visual arts. Because it's a photograph that we all know so well. I think one of the most famous images in the world, like the picture of the Afghan girl. This is a picture that comes up again and again. And I think Steve McCurry gets a lot of, has gotten a lot of benefit from this photograph. And I don't know that you can say the same thing about the girl and her life. It's a very complicated thing. And I, I mean, of course, there's all these conversations going on about power dynamics, about the role between the subject and the photographer. And so I'm not going to try to <laughs> unfold all of that here. Feel free to try. <laughs> I do think that especially at a certain level, the photographer benefits from a photograph far more than the subject does. And I don't know how much it benefits us to associate that image with Steve McCurry. And I'm only using him as an example, not to pick on him. Feel free to pick on him. It's fine. <laughs> oh, He's famous enough. I mean, he can be picked on. It's fine. But I think that the point of the photograph, hopefully, is to illuminate something about that girl's life and her plight. And I would hope that the greater benefit of that went to her and not to him. I'm thinking this through. That's why I'm, I'm sort of pausing. Because like, there's, I mean, there's a flip side of that, which is like on social media right now, famous people or even like just whatever, beautiful people often will post photographs that are by photographers and not give credits to the photographers. Therefore, the famous people becomes more famous because they had a beautiful photo made by a photographer yes. who gets no credit for it. So that's sort of the flip side of that, where it's for like, sure. I'm not sure which extreme is better. <laughs> no doubt. And I obviously uh, have a lot of photographer friends and just photographers in my network who 
complain of this exact thing that they don't get as much credit that as they would like for creating an image. And at that point I am talking about creating an image versus the person who is portrayed. And I see, I see that point too. This is another side of that same question, which again, I don't think has an easy answer, but I guess what I'm thinking of is what is the point of that photograph being in the world? Who is it for? And that's the part that I think kind of that on a case by case basis, even we may be trying to, to unravel that. I do think that, um, you know, photographers bring their own vision, their own selves to every time that they are behind a camera and that no two people will photograph some situation, some person, something in the same way. And yet at the same time, there's something somehow unsettled with the dynamic, especially of pictures of people where I'm not sure where the greater emphasis should be. The fact that it's a photograph of someone or by someone. Sometimes there's this dueling energy of fame and there's the questions of who is benefiting more, who had more control over that situation. And what do people see when they look at that picture? All of those things kind of combine and a, a photo takes on a life of its own. Well, when it comes to the Steve McCreary one, the, the first thing that I always think about when I think about that image is while everybody knows that image is this like iconic image in culture, I couldn't tell you what the written story was about that that image was supposed to be illustrating because it's a tough image because it, on the one hand, I'm guessing it was about some story about the difficulties of things going on in Afghanistan, but the lighting and this young lady, they were beautiful. So like he made something that I believe was meant to be a horrible story into something beautiful. And so like, that's even a whole issue in and of itself, like taking things that are, you know, heart wrenching and, 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 and emotional and engaging and then making them quote unquote, like, and this is subjective, I'm sure, but like beautiful in some way, that's a whole different issue that photography struggles with a lot, I think as well. Well, it is in part because, not because of the photographer, but because of the audience. It's not Steve McCurry that made that photograph famous. It's everyone being arrested by that photograph. It's everyone saying, my God, her beautiful eyes. This is so, I mean, and so. Well, it's we the have... editor at National Geographic <laughs> that chose to put it on the cover. Sure, but people's choosing to respond to it in the way they did, that's what made it famous, the, the mimesis of that image, right? That just turned it into its iconography. Well, but what if it hadn't even been on the cover? So maybe they used it in the story, but maybe it was only like a half page image inside the magazine versus the cover. So like, you know, even that placement of it gave it an additional gravitas that changed the whole dynamic of that whole story and probably his career thus far. Sure. That, that also had an impact, although it's been on countless covers since then. So maybe if it, even if it wasn't picked for that initial cover, maybe it would have been picked up for all those other covers after. You keep bringing up the balance of like power between a subject and a photographer. I would love to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, it is, 
a field of study in itself. And I know I am not the most informed person on it. There are people who really get into it. I promise you I am far less informed than you. <laughs> so please do, do uh, try to educate me. There are always going to be power dynamics involved in portraits because of the sitter photographer dynamic. It's the one who is looking and the one who is being looked at. That audience or voyeur perspective changes any interaction the same way that interviewer interviewee can change the dynamic. The pre-existing dynamic of maybe one person is far more famous than the other can already change how someone is. The fact of it being a child versus an adult can introduce another element. The fact that of it being a vulnerable person can add another element. The fact that it can be a photographer from the Western world who understands images and their impact and how they're spread and how they're going to be used and how they're going to be profited upon and published and reproduced versus someone who does not have that education in media or photography, who does not understand those things, even though they might be quite literate in other ways, but let's just say they aren't even literate at all, they will never understand what they're agreeing to, assuming they've agreed at all, as opposed to just being captured unaware. So, I mean, th there's no easy answer on any of this. And depending on if someone's working within photojournalism or art or fashion or any other field, all of these questions have different meaning. But I do think it makes a very big difference if the photographer is thinking about these topics. Because in the earlier days of photography, there was not this conversation happening. And a lot of photographers felt very confident as takers. And there's less room for that now. I think the conversation is quite developed now. And I think and I hope that there is no more room for photographers to be producing work that involves other people without challenging themselves, at least, on what they're trying to do and why. Why are they the ones to capture that photo? What are they trying to achieve? What are they getting out of it? And what is the other person getting out of it? Yeah, it's really funny. When I moved to Europe, like in America, I use the word collaboration a lot. Like I love collaborating with people on projects. And when I got to Europe, it seems there's a translation shift in that. Because when I said, hey, would you like to collaborate? They assumed that I was asking them to work for free. And, mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, that that's not what that word, it means working equally, like on a project together and like, you know, bringing your own strengths and weaknesses into a thing and collaborating, like working together. The word collaboration doesn't always um, sort of translate, I think, between languages and cultures, which I found surprising. I think it doesn't even translate between different people, because I think some people would use it to mean exactly what you said, meaning, hey, will you do this for me? There, we collaborated. <laughs> no, that's an employee. <laughs> well, or an unpaid employee, as the case may be. Or a slave, if you, depending on where you are in the world. <laughs> well, some people mean it as, hey, do me a favor. I'm going to 
you know, let me, let me, uh, let me make you Instagram famous. <laughs> there, oh, we did a collaboration. Fuck, yeah, don't even start <laughs> me on that bullshit. But no, but the, yeah, I mean, but it, the, but that's the thing is there are other words for that. Hey, do me a favor. That does not mean the same as collaboration. That's why there's the word favor. <laughs> okay, like it, it's very interesting. I mean, I, and don't get me wrong, there are different words being used. Like the thing that I've noticed a lot in Europe is also there's collectives and uh, these kinds of terms, which basically are collaborations. But it's again just a different vocabulary, which I don't even want to get down to. But like. I have such a pet peeve about the entire arts industry across the board and its lack of consistency when it comes to vernacular because fuck like you can say the word collaborate in New York City and that you, you say collaborate in Berlin means totally different things same thing with like collective or a grant or I mean I mean and so many different words like it drives me nuts like why can't we come together and like figure out a common vocabulary that we all will agree on it doesn't even have to be English English. I don't want to make it sound like this is like American centric. I will use, you know, like I will say Kunsthall instead of, you know, gallery or museum. That's fine. But like just finding a common vocabulary, I think is in many ways, it's lovely and it shows sort of regional differences and cultural differences and all that. But like when it comes to stuff like writing grants or doing proposals or artist residencies or artist statements, even like coming up with like some people don't even know what an artist statement is because that doesn't mean the same thing in their culture. It's like, ah, that's one of my big pet peeves, common vocabulary. Good luck with that. I mean, you can't even uh, get six people to agree on a pizza. Like, what do you think you can get them to agree on language? All right, then we'll just move on. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I understand exactly why you're proposing that that would be useful. I agree that would be useful if you have to write descriptions, applications, all these things, and you're trying to write about them in a consistent way, but you can't agree on these relatively common words. It makes sense. That's problematic. Well, like, I'll give you an example. I went looking for a grant, well, what I call a travel grant, because I'm from America, um, whereas in Europe, it's often called a mobility grant. Now, and then there are other various other terms, because like, in the United States, a travel grant means I want to travel from one place to another and back. In Europe, I've even found there are mobility grants for traveling from a country outside that country. That's one form of a mobility grant. There's another form of a mobility grant that is traveling from one place within a country to another place within that same country. So not even leaving the country, that's a mobility grant. Now, why would those like using the exact same words mean completely different things? That just kind of drives me nuts. Like, I think it's just sort of in the purely administrative stuff, because like, even when it comes to like us as creative people, so like, let's say we are applying for uh, artist residency. Let's go with that. Cause I love making fun of artist residencies. Don't get me wrong. I love artist residencies and I look forward to doing more of them in my life, but fuck, they are a pain in the ass. You can like spend a weeks crafting this perfect application to this one artist residency. And then you find another artist residency and almost everything about the residency is very similar, but then you have to recraft it to fit their criteria. And so the amount of work that is then thrust back upon us as the creative people to be able to apply for any number of things is that we have to continually reevaluate and readjust our vocabulary to fit 
whatever their vocabulary, each individual application's vocabulary. And this is where it comes down to, I wish there was a more consistent vocabulary so that we as creatives would have to spend less time having to, to you know, keep changing these things to meet everybody's specific vocabulary. I'm over it there. I'm done. <laughs> Administration is, is part of, I think, everyone's job, no matter what your job is. There's always admin. I am aware of that. <laughs> but I just... <laughs> but still. <laughs> but I just wish that it could be made a little bit easier. Yeah. That's it. Just like, I, I'm not asking for perfection, but like at least attempting. Maybe, maybe then you can start that imperative. <sighs> yeah, some academic can come up with a, a dictionary for the, the arts vocabulary for me. You're a professor. I think that counts as an academic, no? <laughs> Technically, you are correct. I, I, I am the least academic academic person you've ever met. <laughs> Have you, can you not pick that up by this conversation? <laughs> I love academia as far as teaching. Like mm. if I could be in the classroom 80, 85% of the time and only spend like 15% of my time doing administrative crap and stupid meetings and other wastes of my time, I would gladly be academic 100%. Unfortunately, most academics are the opposite where they spend like 85% of their time doing administrative stuff and meetings and other stupid wastes of time instead of actually educating the next generation. So I am more of a hands-on be in the classroom, kind of like boots on the ground, kind of an academic than I am a study, research, write paper kind of academic. Mm. Make podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> an important part of collective enlightenment. Well, this is an extension of my academic process because to a yeah. certain extent, what I hope this does is I hope that this educates people to help them better navigate their own careers. Like that's sort of one of the fundamental goals of this whole process. I don't know if it's working, but I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll know next generation when people say they were influenced or not influenced by this podcast. <laughs> So anyways, getting back to you instead of my soapbox rant. So you also do what you call consulting, editing, collaborations with fellow artists, academics, and publishers. I'm reading that off your website now. So like when you're doing that, what do you find that creative people need help with the most? It does depend very much where they are in their career, as well as where they are in relation to a specific project. I'm not a therapist, but I would bet that I have in, this in common with therapists that the reason that people come to me, what we start out talking to me is not usually what the real problem is. So normally- well, Most creative people probably need therapy also. <laughs> Or their art is the therapy. And when they have trouble getting through it, they don't really get further with themselves. Or sometimes the problems with themselves is what's holding them back from producing the work that they want. But so I do think that some people come with these very practical concerns, like writing text, a project statement, basically, help me write this project statement. Or I have to put together an exhibition. How should I present this work? 
And that's a very practical question. And I think the reason why it's often so practical is that is usually where people think that they are stuck because they think they are in control of their work. And through our conversation, through the questions, what usually comes out is that they are a little less confident with the subject, with what they're working with than they thought they were. And it needs a little bit more refinement, grace, something. So that's usually what we end up producing together is something which is actually more harmonized between the concept and the ultimate format that they're putting it into. You mentioned control. That's a long-standing sort of joke between me and my father, because I always say like, I want to have more control over my whatever artistic expression thing. And he always just looks at me with a side eye, like, you think you have control? Hmm. It's perfect and it's beautiful because, okay, on one hand, I do think that an artist needs control over what it is that they're trying to do, especially when they're trying to put that work out into the world. And at the same time, some of my favorite works are the ones that I still find so problematic, I hardly understand them. They are barely within my grasp because they're bigger than I am. I cannot hold the whole world in my head. And that is, I think, its strength is that it's smarter than I am. So you like work that is smarter than you are? Because I know a lot of people that like sort of dislike that kind of work because they're like, oh, the work makes me feel stupid. Mm, yeah, I mean, I bet I think this has more to do with people's hangups about what smart means. I have no problems with the recognition that cognition is beautiful. Intellectualism is beautiful. There are, of course, snobs that bring that into the mud and who ruin it for other people. But I do think that the ability to think, to reflect, to cognate, to process, to analyze, these are beautiful human capacities. And if we're not doing them, then we're kind of not living up to our own humanity. We're one of the few species that can, can do such things to the extent that we know other animals' minds anyway. So Yes, I love work that is, you know, in a way more intelligent that I am equipped to deal with if I have the feeling that it occupies an internal logic. For sure, it can't just be the empty words of intellectualism without the content. There's got to be that essence which is fundamentally true, which you can feel even if you know it's escaping you a little bit. Well, see, and the thing I run into a lot is because balance seems to be the theme of this conversation, but it's that balance between the work being, let's call it like more intellectual, more sort of like thought beyond my abilities versus the text. Like, I love work that pushes me and makes me think and, and sort of shows me the world in a way that I could never even could have fathomed versus text that is written in a manner that Basically, I need a dictionary or a thesaurus to even be able to read it, which makes me then feel stupid. So I love art itself that pushes me, but I freaking hate text that makes me feel like an idiot. Yes, I agree with you. And I think that is a lot of people's common complaints, specifically about art texts. And I agree entirely. And as 
an experienced art writer, I can say that from my own viewpoint, what I'm often reading is someone's insecurity exposed through their use of words. They are trying to express something, but they're not incredibly gifted writers. They're not writers. They are probably researchers or academics or somehow gifted on a subject matter. And they're being forced to put that subject matter into words, which is not necessarily their gift. And so the writing comes across that way. Agreed. I have this old thing that I used to say that I generally say is like, I chose to be an artist because I'm not a writer. Like if I could write, then I would have been a writer, not an artist, <laughs> visual artist. I mean, somebody recently said like, why is it that artists are expected to not only make beautiful work, but then also write about it. Whereas a writer is not expected to paint about their short story. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally understand that frustration. And at the same time, it's kind of just a bare necessity. I mean, speaking now from the perspective of an editor, if I'm meant to look at a body of work and I don't have any other information other than images, I have very little to go on. I mean, there are some images where I do feel like, okay, the whole story is here, even if it's not in words. But that's really rare. A lot of artists are working with concepts and you understand what's happening visually, but then there are these underlying concepts that wouldn't occur to you personally, but as soon as you read it in a statement, you think, oh, wow, yeah, of course, of course. Oh, this is so well thought through. This is so coherent. I do think that these works benefit from some written accompaniment. And from the perspective of the artist, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even have to be particularly well written as long as it includes facts, <laughs> some facts that I can actually understand what the person is getting at. It's more when works get presented in other contexts, like, like in uh, museums or books or, or so on. And they've actually hired an academic or someone who is in the profession of writing, which may not be a writer, to produce some written accompaniment that it gets really wrecked. Really? Okay, because I'm going to take the opposite position on that for the moment and until you sway me uh, to your side. I am horrible at writing, let's say, let's go stick with artist statements in particular because, well, everybody has to do them and everybody hates doing them as a general whole. I'm horrible at it because, of, I mean, of course, like I'm too close to it. I'm very, you know, subjective with it, blah, blah, blah. All these kinds of, you know, things that we all, uh, you know, have that same problem with. I love it when a curator or an outside person can come in and sort of give me an alternative perspective and and maybe even refine like all the disparate ideas that I'm sort of batting around into a more precise idea. I love that immensely because, you know, 99% of the time when I'm working on a project, it's about nine different ideas, but one of them is the primary idea. And then the other eight are supporting ideas that sort of help it along and nudge it in the direction. And I can't necessarily see which one is the primary because of course I'm so close to it. Having that outside perspective, I think is absolutely magnificent. Like I've never had as such great text written about my work as when I've let somebody else write it. That maybe wasn't what I meant to say, because I agree with you entirely. I think outside perspectives are incredibly informative 
and can sometimes give you that if if not objective distance at least external distance to to kind of look at something a little bit more remotely let's say that i guess what i'm referring to is when someone is trying very hard to elevate something through words and just ends up making it worse because the words are because it's obvious what they're doing it's transparent yeah it's pomposity for the the sake of pomposity like yes absolutely like my uncle (laughs) he died many years ago but he wrote this book he was a medieval islamic medicine professor at oxford and so he wrote this book that i tried to read it and then the first paragraph i had to go to a dictionary i think seven times in one paragraph and i was just like i am not reading this book like i mean i'm sure it's great and for people who are interested in it that's magnificent but like fuck this is just way too dense and way too difficult but i mean he was a scholar at oxford writing it for scholars at oxford so like great good for him in that little insular academic industrial complex that's magnificent but for the rest of the world and the everybody else that you want to engage in your artwork you kind of i mean it's not and you know i feel bad like it's not like you have to dumb it down but you have to make it relatable yeah i agree for sure there are occasions there are certain audiences where it's one academic talking to another And I understand there's a whole codified language there that you need to be speaking in in order to be taken seriously and in order to publish, to get peer review, et cetera. That is its own special case. But when you are writing directly to the audience, I think accessibility is important. And I agree entirely that that does not mean dumbing something down because I think a sign of good writing is to trust that your audience is intelligent, but they're probably intelligent about different topics than this particular one. So what you want to do is make something more clear to an intelligent person who just doesn't happen to know about this particular topic. Agreed. I mean, and another thing that like, I think is magnificent about like what you do. So like, I'm giving you kudos through here, this kind of idea. It's like, I love curators and editors because not only do they take an artistic sort of hodgepodge of ideas that are sort of all rolling around in their head and necessarily like write a nice artist statement, but they also have this great ability because they have knowledge of sort of what's going on in the rest of the world to contextualize whatever it is you're doing in the greater art world where like me, I sit in my studio and I make my work and then I just sort of bring it out into the world and I'm like, here, it's done. But like, I have no idea how it fits into anything or or what's going on in the world or anything like this. And so like when we come out of our cave with our like project, like, it, you know, it has no relevance to anything and no relationship to anything else and necessarily. But oftentimes these editors and curators that sort of come in and help refine the context and the text, I think are an amazing amazing sort of go-between and connective tissue between whatever we were making in our studios and in our minds to help it to fit into whatever's being talked about in society at any given moment. Indeed. And I would say that's probably one of my favorite things is drawing connections between things which are not necessarily or literally connected. 
and thank you very much for it. <laughs> oh, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> How did you get from the U.S. to the Netherlands or why did you get from the U.S. to the Netherlands? I'm originally from Texas and I grew up most of my life in Texas, aside from living in Sydney as a kid with my family. I'm sorry, Sydney is in Australia? Right, for a year and a half. Okay. Uh, and aside from that, I we lived in Texas. And then at the age of uh, 22, after graduating college, uh, quitting my job and so on, I decided to go for an adventure, which in my own mind at that moment meant packing two suitcases and expecting to go for something like six months to Prague. So hey. I... <laughs> Hey, so I went to Prague with these two suitcases and the expectation of staying for six months. Wait, just to be clear, what year was this? Because that makes a huge difference in the history of Prague. 2003. Okay, so still pretty cheap to be here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I had a friend of mine that came to Prague in 1992. And yeah. he was like, Jeez. he was like, I was able to stay at a five-star hotel and eat a seven-course meal and do all this for $5 a day. Yeah, it wasn't in those glory days. It was definitely after that, but it was as well before, I think, what is the upward trend in the embracing of advanced capitalism. So, yeah, 2003, I got to Prague and... At the time, ended up really falling in love with it, and I stayed for five years. But definitely, after I think after about year three, I fell increasingly out of love every year and was really, really glad to leave at the end of those uh, around five years. I still wanted to stay in Europe. I just wanted to be somewhere maybe a little bit more Western so that it was a little bit more similar to the culture that I had grown up with. And so I moved to the Netherlands. So I've been now in the Netherlands for something like 14 or 15 years. I'm not sure how long, but that was, that was how it started. Okay. Le legal marijuana had nothing to do with it then, right? <laughs> it actually didn't. And that is, that is, I think, one of the most common assumptions or understandings specifically from Americans on what they think the Netherlands is about. And correct. <laughs> or a love of tulips. But it's it's actually, if anything, I would say that was one of the reasons why at first I was a bit resistant to move to Amsterdam. I thought, Amsterdam, what am I going to do there? Smoke weed. <laughs> but I was actually surprised and over the years increasingly pleasantly surprised by how livable it is. It is a very happy, well-functioning, prosperous society, uh, which is relatively safe and in my mind has a very nice combination of the cosmopolitan large city benefits like culture and uh, commerce, big companies, museums, and so on, and kind of the smallness uh, because it's a very small country, but even even the cities are quite modest and small. It's very human-sized. So over the years, I became more and more entrenched. 
Okay. Well, then I won't tell you my drug-fueled experiences in Amsterdam because they are long stories. Like, yeah. They were good fun, though. Good fun. I was young. I was 19, 20 years old. But, yeah, lots of fun. Any last advice or sort of sort of ideas that you would like to give out? Because I know you do portfolio reviews, you do consulting, so like you, you do these kinds of things. So like anything to, I mean, try to be specific. Like you not not like you know persevere, keep working. Like those are a little too obvious. <laughs> something from your own experience. Something that you've noticed that a lot of people pay, maybe don't pay as much attention to as they should. I would say. I mean, first and foremost, I think it's got something to do with kindness to yourself and also to other people. I think coming back to this topic that artists can be very self-contained or have the belief that they're very self-contained and that they are individuals creating for a world apart, there can be a tendency to isolate and to feel excluded, and as well to be very hard on oneself. And so I would say to seek out connections and to particularly be kind to yourself, which doesn't mean putting a happy, glossy face on things, but just to be as gentle to yourself as you would to a really good friend. I think a lot of people myself included over the years, have this internal track that if we had a friend who spoke to us in that way, we would cut that person out of our lives because they are so harsh and cruel and unforgiving. And so I think it's really important to have an internal voice who is a friend to you, who is actually kind and supportive and understanding about where you're coming from. There's a, a book I'm reading now, a new book from uh, someone I know named Josh Cohen, who writes at the intersection of uh, art and literature. And he's a psychotherapist, so he writes as well about psychotherapy side of arts and literature, kind of at that intersection. And one of the things that he said about a lot of the people who come into his practice is that a lot of them let their pursuit of greatness get in the way of their appreciation of things being good. And I think that that is really important. It's urgent that people, even, even people who have the goal of being great and who are somehow disappointed when they stumble and fall short of greatness, that they don't let that pursuit get in the way of appreciating all the things in their life that are very good. Fabulous. And that's, it's probably very timely for me to hear. So thank you. <laughs> With pleasure. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, or studio mates, anybody with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, both today and for the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, 
and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Arts Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.